Hello. It's nice to be back with you. Um, we're going to read today from Acts chapter 1. Um, Callum read the first few verses uh, of Acts chapter 1 last week, and uh, we're going to read uh, the next little, bu- next little passage from chapter 1, verses 12 to 26. So I'm going to read it, and then going to ask you a question about it. But don't worry, it doesn't require any specialist knowledge. It just requires a little bit of intelligent imagination, and you're all capable of that. So let's read Acts 1, verses 12 to 26. This passage, in case you weren't here last week, beginning of the book of Acts, which is Luke, the gospel writer's second book, so Luke volume 2, uh, which tells the story of the Acts of the Apostles, or as some have uh, renamed it, the Acts of the Holy Spirit, um, in the period following Jesus' uh, ascension. And so the passage that Callum looked at with you last week, I hope and trust it's what he was supposed to be looking at, um, was uh, Jesus' ascension into heaven. Uh, when Jesus went uh, on the occasion, he went with them to the Mount of Olives. He was taken up from uh, their sight and, uh, until a cloud hid him. After having told them to wait in Jerusalem for the gift of the Holy Spirit, who would make them witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so Jesus disappeared, and two angels appeared, promising them that this same Jesus would return in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. And, and he never has to this day. So we still wait for Jesus to come back from heaven in the same way that he went, uh, literally, physically, uh, to earth. Um, so this is the, what happened next then um, from verse 12. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, the Scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language, Akildama, that is, field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership." Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph, called Barsabbas, also known as Eustace, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. 
Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the eleven apostles. Amen. May God bless this reading to our understanding. So, here's my question for you based on that, and maybe you can just flick the reading back, um, Hannah, so that the um, so that verse 14 is visible. They all join together constantly in prayer. So we've got 11 apostles along with the women, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Jesus' half-brothers, effectively, the sons of Joseph and Mary. Uh, I think there were at least four of them. Um, and, and we know that there was a bigger crowd of about 120. So just round your tables, what do you think they were praying about? If you were in their prayer gatherings, what were they praying about? Discuss. Okay, let me put you out of your misery because you sound like you're struggling. You're either half asleep or you're really struggling with that one. Did you… Uh, did you come up with anything? What would you be praying about if you were part of that group? Any wisdom at this table? Probably like, what do we do now? Okay. It's pre-Holy Spirit, so there's got to be an element of, right, was that it? Do we just give thanks to God for what's been a great experience? Or Okay, all right. So what do we do next? Uh, and yeah, is it just Thanksgiving and looking back? Anything here? One would hope that the answer would be that they were praying for the baptism of the Holy Spirit that Jesus had just promised them before he ascended. Did they know that that's what it was, though? He just said there was a gift coming. John baptized with water by a few days ago. You'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Okay, all right. Good. Adam? Alistair's hastily pointing to Adam. Passing responsibility to me. Um, just probably for understanding of recent events, I don't think they grasped the whole weight of the, what was going on, so they probably wanted Jesus to be there guiding them, but he's away off to heaven. Okay, so understanding of what just happened uh, and how are they supposed to, to figure out what just happened. Any wisdom here? David? Well, they're probably pretty scared, so I'd say not to get killed as well. Okay, prayer for protection, that they weren't going to get killed. Okay, all right. Uh, we talked about two things. Uh, first of all, the, the future and the, the worry about the future, but also these were the people who were closest to Jesus uh, and his teachings. So reflecting on um, the, the teaching of, of Jesus in prayer, thinking about uh, persistence in prayer, and also the, the pattern that's laid out in, in the Lord's Prayer. Okay, right. So they might just have been using the Lord's Prayer as a, as a model, but also... Uh, reflecting on the teaching and, and just beginning to reflect on it in prayer. Anyone, any wisdom here? Mostly been covered. You see, when you get this far across, yeah, it's easy to say that, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what about you? Any fresh wisdom? Same story. Same story. Yeah, I thought, I'd, yeah, nice one. Okay. All right. Of course, we don't know the answer to that question. Um, and, and we can reflect, reflect on it. What would you do at that point? What do you do at those points in your life where what's just been uh, is finished and the next isn't really obvious? You quite clearly at a stage 
where you're, you're caught between uh, two, two uh, realities, I suppose, in a sense. You're caught between what has just um, completed, and, and there can't have been anything much more conclusive than watching Jesus' feet disappear through a cloud and have two angels standing there saying that Jesus would come back again uh, in the same way that they'd seen him go. Now, I wonder if some of their praying, of course, might just be for praying for Jesus to come back. After all, that's what you said. All right, okay. May said <laughs> that. <laughs> they may well just have been saying, when will Jesus come back? The, the, the gospels weren't written down. The first gospel, earliest manuscript, is not, uh, doesn't appear until the mid-50s at the earliest uh, and this is, well, about 30 A.D. if you take off the four years when Jesus was probably born before A.D. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, it was some time before they actually wrote the Gospels down because they were expecting Jesus to come back. After all, Jesus had risen from the dead, and they thought uh, they'd lost him before, and he'd come back. He'd disappeared, uh, and then he'd appeared again. And so they were over the past five weeks, getting used to this kind of rhythm of Jesus going and coming and, and going and coming, and, and who knows what He might do next, and he, who knows when that might happen. We know that He hasn't come back yet. They didn't. And so, they're in this limbo state, some gift of the Holy Spirit. They're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. What does that look like? What does it look like to be baptized with the Holy Spirit? My goodness, even, uh, you know, latter-day theologians will argue <laughs> exactly what does it mean. The word baptismal means generally to plunge, if you plunge a vessel into a body of water. Um, so, what does it mean to be plunged into the Holy Spirit? They, they associated baptism with John the baptism in the River Jordan. So, what does it mean to be plunged into the Holy Spirit? That's a kind of weird picture, right? And so, we have this picture of um, liminality. Liminality just means it's a threshold space. It's a out of one, but not quite into the other. Twilight is a liminal time in the day where the light is fading, but the dark and the moonlight and so on have not yet uh, arisen. And so, the tone of this whole passage is, is one of uh, aftermath one of uncertainty, one of uh, hope, one of a certain amount of decisiveness and decision-making about the next. I know all about aftermaths this week. Our daughter, as many of you know, Beth got married on Monday, and after a, a wedding, a family wedding, there's an aftermath. There's the aftermath of packing your stuff and getting out of your accommodation, there's the aftermath of getting all the bits and pieces out of the venue where you were and making sure you don't forget anything or leave it behind. There's the aftermath uh, of uh, relatives uh, going off in different directions. There's the aftermath of the conversations that you have with people as you go over the events of the day and you remember it and you talk about this or that or whatever. You know, when there's a big event in our lives, we tend both practically and emotionally and in conversationally to take a little bit of time to go over the events and to think back about what just happened, whether it was, whether it was good or bad. 
And we find that whenever there's a tragic event, um, when the bin lorry uh, tragedy happened in George Square just a couple of Christmases ago, there was uh, an aftermath, if you like, of people coming and signing condolence books and talking to one another and, and needing the support and the listening ear of uh, various people, um, counselors, pastors, uh, medics, and so on. People needed uh, to come to terms with the events. Of course, the passage doesn't quite start with them reflecting. It starts with them making a journey back, uh, making a journey back from where they saw Jesus going to heaven, back to the place where they were staying. And, and I wonder, you know, I wonder what that journey back was like. You know, uh, places acquire for us special significance. A lady breezed in here on Friday afternoon, and, and she came in and, and had a little uh, walk around the place. I thought she was just going to the loo, but then she didn't go to the loo. She, she had a little wander around, and she didn't buy a coffee. She didn't go to the cafe. She was only in the building probably for about five or ten minutes. And then just as she was about to leave, she said, uh, in passing, she said, I was married here 57 years ago today. So she wanted to come and see the place which for her, she was on her own. I assume she was now widowed. Uh, and she wanted to come and be in the place of uh, event and memory that was special and significant for her. And we all have those places, right? We could have spent a happy time talking about places that have a particular significance for us. Our uh, daughter and new son-in-law will, will hold the place where they got married and where they had their honeymoon and spent their first uh, week and all the rest of it. They'll be special and become special places. And we all have those special places where something significant happened, and, and it's a touchstone for that event. It's a reminder and we may go back and, and, and see it. I remember going back to the place we went on St. Anne's on Sea on holiday every year. Uh, and I did, did that thing that we all do when you go back somewhere as an adult and you think, oh, it's really small. <laughs> we reflect on where we've come from. And so we're told that the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives. And they went to an upstairs room where they were staying. I wonder how many memories they walked through. I mean, it was only five weeks, right, since they'd come down that very same road from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem with Jesus on a colt, the foal of a donkey, and jeering crowds celebrating the arrival of the Messianic King in Jerusalem. And as you get to the bottom of the hill, that goes from the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem, you go past the Garden of Gethsemane, and I wonder if Peter, James, and John remembered how they couldn't stay awake as Jesus prayed, and his prayers were like drops of blood, or his, his sweat became like drops of blood. Such was the intensity of his praying. And of course, that was the very place that Judas had led a detachment of temple guard soldiers to come and arrest Jesus. And it was right there as they walked down past the Garden of Gethsemane that Peter, James, and John certainly would remember that moment of betrayal when Judas kissed Jesus as a sign of identification that sealed his fate. And then, of course, the would have walked along the same route that Jesus would have gone now under guard 
captive to the temple guard, under arrest, and taken off to the high priest's palace. And so, even the very act of going from where Jesus was ascended into heaven, or Jesus ascended into heaven, back to the place where they were staying was like a memory lane. If you go to the walled city of Jerusalem today, of course, you can walk as thousands of pilgrims do every year, the Via Dolorosa, the Road of Sorrows, which charts the journey that Jesus made from His arrest to the place of His crucifixion and then to the tomb, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And then they were told that they went into, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Well, Jesus, of course, made arrangements for His disciples to share the Last Supper in a large upstairs room. Was it the same room? I mean, they were renting space in Jerusalem because none of them, as far as we know, lived there. And so, they're in an upstairs room still, maybe the same one. You know, the same place where they could remember Jesus breaking bread with them enjoying that Passover meal of lamb and bread and bitter herbs and all the things that belong to the Passover meal. I wonder if it was the same room and in that very space they could still catch memories, catch memories of how Judas had ate with them and yet had dipped his bread with Jesus. I wonder if they could remember how Judas, after a muffled conversation with Jesus, got up and went out, and it was dark. And if they could remember, as they sat in that room, how it was only a matter of weeks since Jesus had stripped to the garments of a slave and washed their feet. I wonder if that was still the same room where they hid with the doors locked for fear of the Jews their den, their base in Jerusalem, and Jesus came and stood amongst them. I wonder if they could remember how Cleopas and the other disciple, perhaps Mrs. Cleopas, burst into that room on the evening of that first day when confusion was still reigning and explained how they had met Jesus. I wonder if that room held a place of special significance for Thomas, because it was there a week later that Jesus appeared again specifically to show him that he was risen. And so they're on a journey and in a place that just reeks with the heaviness of significance and recent memory of everything that Jesus had done. You know, sometimes when you're, you're in a place where some big event had happened, you, you can imagine it so easily. You can just catch it. I wonder if it was a comfort to them to be in that place as they prayed, and I think all the answers to that question are legitimate and reasonable. And so here was this moment where they could see and imagine so easily the recent past. And they were hanging on this promise that Jesus would send the Holy Spirit. And then what? 
What are we supposed to do next? You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. <laughs> you know, if you're sitting in an upstairs room in Jerusalem with, with that kind of promise, and, and how's that going to happen? <laughs> we know the past, but we're not too sure of what comes next or what it looks like. And so Peter makes his announcement. And I wonder if one of the things that happened as they prayed, and as they prayed for strength and courage, as they prayed the what next, Lord, prayer, as they prayed and thought and reflected about the teaching and prayed that, that the Lord would make them strong enough to keep the faith. I mean, Peter had already denied Jesus and been reinstated. Would he do it again? Judas had betrayed Jesus and, and hanged himself, and his decomposing body had eventually snapped the rope, and his uh, guts spilled out as his body hit the ground. And so they, they saw that it could go badly. And in the context of praying, Peter made his announcement. I was kind of thinking when I was reflecting on this passage, was Peter a bit premature? You know, was Paul the twelfth apostle? <laughs> Did God have other plans? Because Paul was the one who met with Jesus and had a calling of his own. Matthias never had a calling to come follow me in the way that the others did. He was appointed out of this context. But what was it that gave Peter the authority and the certainty to stand up and make this declaration that they needed to replace Judas? It was because they were in prayer. It was because they were in prayer. And when the church takes the time and the place to set aside time and listen and pray, then God says things. And if the church doesn't take the time to set aside time to pray or to listen, then the church just does things anyway. <laughs> you know, we don't always need to wait for the voice of God. We just do things because they seem good to us to do. But that's not always the right thing or the God thing. And, you know, I'm very aware here in St. George's Tron that we're in a, a busy city center with lots of, lots of need and lots of communities and lots of people and lots of opportunities for ministry or mission or engagement with the city. And I'm also very conscious that it would be very easy for us to get pulled in a thousand directions, but increasingly, and this came up at our last, uh, just last weekend, our leadership team were away in a learning community. Um, we're doing a kind of learning community training thing once every six months over two years. And one of the things in our little team of six from this church that we're reflecting in that day on the where do we go from here was that actually we need to learn to listen to the voice of God more than we do. You know, we need to make listening for God's voice, for His direction for His church and, and, and for, for us as people more of a priority. 
And perhaps this little bit illustrates it. You see, I have confidence that the decision that Peter reached was a God decision because they joined constantly together in prayer. And so it was in that environment of prayer and of listening and expecting to hear from God that Peter was able to stand up with confidence amongst this small church, decent-sized church, 120 people already. And points out the need to replace Judas, an act of preparation, an act of getting ready. Judas had made his decision. He'd been called, and yet Judas, for whatever reason, and lakes of ink have been spilled trying to work out the psychology of Judas' decision, but Judas made his decision, and it ended badly. You know, just being called to follow Jesus and to be His disciple is not the end of the matter. You and I have to decide how we're going to walk that out, what choices we're going to make, and how we're going to live on the back of that. Because there have been plenty of people who have stepped up, gone forward, signed commitment cards, and said, yes, I'll, I'll, I, will, I believe in Jesus as my Savior, and I'll take Him as my Lord, and then they're nowhere. Gone off and done their own thing. They were overcome by the desires for other things, just as Judas was overcome by frustration, perhaps, or certainly the desire for 30 pieces of silver. And so the challenge of this passage was that they recognized that you could be called by Jesus and still make bad choices that would have toxic outcomes for you and for others. Now, the Judas story is an intriguing one theologically. Did God need a Judas? Did He call Judas so that Judas would betray it? You can go round in circles. Judas exercised choice. And so they recognized that they needed to replace Him. And so in that context of prayer, they heard God somehow, Peter heard God say that this was what God wanted them to do. What are you hearing God say in prayer? And how are you and how am I engaged in, in listening for God's voice? Because we need you. We need each other. Who's the we? The leadership team here. But all of us need each other to be praying and listening for the voice of God for this church. Please don't imagine that because it's an A-listed building sitting in the city center that's been here for 200 years, that this place is a given, and that you just come and go and come and go, and it doesn't really matter. It does. See, if God has called you to be the living stones of this church, never mind how long the stones around the walls have been here, it doesn't matter. This building, as many others, could become a nightclub or a, or a restaurant or any one of a million things dead easy. It's just a pile of stones. You see, you are the church. And if you're called to be here, then you're called, as these were called, to listen for the voice of God. Now, we have an opportunity. There's a little group gathers on a Wednesday at half six, but I'm trusting and assuming. I don't like to check because I trust you. 
that when you young adults get together, when the men's group get together, when the 30-something get together, that, that praying becomes and is part of the rhythm of your life. Because we need to find ways of listening for what God is saying so that we do what He wants and not just what seems right to us. And so Judas' place was not going to be left unfilled. And God is never short of witnesses or servants, despite the hairiest times that the church has gone through in its history. Still, 2018, 2,000 years later on just about, there are millions of believers and witnesses in the world. Despite the best efforts of those who would snuff it out, the church continues to grow and survive, and God continues to raise up those who hear and follow His call to serve in His church. But another one needed to be called and called up to leadership. And in the church, there is a constant need for the next generation of leaders to step up. And that was one of the other things that, that those of us that were there last weekend were reflecting on together. How can we make sure that we are a church that is raising up and identifying and looking for new leaders? And not just leaders to do stuff in here, but to make sure that you do not miss your calling whatever that calling might be. Because we all have a calling if we are in Christ, and those callings will be very diverse indeed. And so, the, after Peter's announcement and his uh, references in the Psalms that the traitor's place should be deserted but that another should come and take his place of leadership, then he uh, urges them to consider identifying a replacement for Judas out of those who had been with us the whole time that the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. And so he's looking for some of the people who have been around the edges from the get-go, we always tend to think of Jesus and His band of merry disciples. You know, there's Jesus and then there's twelve. But of course, there was Jesus and there was twelve, and then there was the women who supported them. And then clearly there were others who had been around since the very beginning. And now, it was their turn and their season. You know, maybe you think, well, I've been a Christian for years, and this is just, this is as far, you know, this is who I am and what I do. This is how I work out my faith. This is, this is how I work out my calling. Well, here's the point that Matthias and Eustace had certainly never been thinking of, the point when one of them was going to be added to the number of the apostles. You see, in their heads, they thought, oh, I know my place. I'm stuck. I'm, I, I do this. This is who I am. There's the disciples now called apostles and, and so on, and then there's me. And suddenly, the spotlight was on them. So, do not imagine that you've reached the place where God is, this is all you're ever going to be or do. 
Because certainly for Matthias, despite the fact that Jesus' entire ministry did not include a calling from Jesus to join the apostles, it came at this point, probably when he least expected it. And so two names go forward. So we know that there were at least two people who've been around since the beginning, Matthias and Eustace, or Josephus, also known as Barsabbas. I'm just going to call him Eustace. And so Eustace and Matthias, names go forward. And I'm fascinated by the fact that one of them, I mean, it's should be fascinated at stating the blooming obvious. One of them was chosen, therefore one of them was not. But just reflecting on that fact, how many people here were the last to get picked at games? Okay, full disclosure. What does it feel like to be the one that isn't picked? I mean, we're back to Thomas, right? Not being in the room when Jesus appears and shows everybody else's wounds except Thomas. And here now, Eustace is set up along with Matthias as a possible replacement. And then in front of everybody, the lot is cast, and it goes to Matthias. Was he relieved? Don't know. Matthias was called to leadership. Did that mean that Eustace was useless? Did that mean that Eustace ceased to have any function, value, gifting, purpose, direction? I don't think so. And just because Matthias was called into a position of leadership didn't mean that either of them was any the less or the more significant than the other. It's about finding your calling. And one of the things we want to be about, I believe, at SGT is helping you find your calling. And let me repeat, your calling may not be to a a particular exercise of a ministry or leadership within the church, but if we help you identify your calling in your workplace or in some other way, in leadership in, in, a, in another church somewhere else, if God calls you to be a, a, a missionary on a foreign field or a missionary in a home field or, or a full-time worker in a, in a Christian organization, hallelujah. But you need to know what your calling is about, whether it's Matthias or Eustace, whether it's to some obvious leadership role, and there will be. There are those of you who need to grow up and move up into leadership here. And we want to make sure that there are more and more people fulfilling their gifts and their calling and their opportunity to exercise our giftedness. And I think it's one of the things which as a church, we, we, as a leadership team, we want to talk and think more about. The, the whole leadership team hasn't had time to reflect on this, so I don't want to preempt discussions that still have to take place. But it's a biblical principle in this passage How do we make sure that you're not just allowed to come along and sit and go through the motions and go away when you might be sitting on a gift or a calling that God has for you, and you shouldn't be missing it? We don't know anything more about Matthias or about Eustace. There's legends, because there always are. about where they went that suggests that Matthias went to uh, Ethiopia. Not sure if that's true. 
But nonetheless, nonetheless, these two men, at that point, just before the coming of the Spirit, but just after the whole ministry of Jesus, that was the moment. That was the moment when God put His hand on each of them, not just one of them, and affirmed that they were witnesses, and affirmed that they had value, and affirmed that they had role and responsibility. Every now and then, I, I'm involved in directing Church of Scotland assessment conferences, and sometimes I'm involved in assessing applicants for ministry. You know, one of the challenges in assessing applicants for ministry is to have the courage to say no as well as yes, and to do so for really good reasons. Because I don't think it would have been good for Eustace to become an apostle replacing Judas if he was not the one God was calling or had cut out for that role. I don't think it's good for anybody to enter into a ministry or anything that they are not shaped and prepared by God for, because it's disastrous for them, and it's disastrous for the people that they seek or attempt to lead. And so, when we assess applicants for ministry, we take very seriously the pastoral responsibility of saying no for the well-being of the people we say no to and for the well-being of the congregations that they might unwittingly damage. But at the same time, we're listening and listening for the voices, and it's one of the huge privileges of, of hearing people tell their story of how they believe God's calling them to ministry. And one of the most convincing things is when people tell you that it won't go away, when people tell you that they thought they were the last person on planet Earth, when people tell you, I absolutely don't want to do this. <laughs> Now, I'm not saying that those are the only hallmarks of a genuine call. But we're going to be praying, and I hope you're praying too, that the Lord will use you, develop you, shape you, and put you where He wants you to be, and there may be a surprise in there for you. It may be to something that you didn't think was going to happen because you thought it was for other people. And I don't know what your gifting may lead to, and it may be to be the best and most amazing Christian disciple in your workplace, and that is a missionary calling. But don't let it be a cop-out if God's calling you to something else as well or instead. But if you're serious, as these guys had to be, because there was still the risk of death, then you will say to God, here I am, send me. Take me, use me. Shape me, prepare me. Help me to find the fullness that you call me to so that I don't waste anything that you've given. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, as we read this passage and reflect upon it, we recognize, Lord, that you are a God who calls your people and that you, Lord, faithfully for 2,000 years have been calling people into ministry and mission and service 
into particular areas of gifting. And so, Lord, we want to be partners with you in SGT as well, in listening for your voice as a church and the direction that we take, in listening for your word to the people as a whole and to individuals, in recognizing and discerning the call and the gift that we can see in one another and speaking that out. Lord, I pray that we might have uh, boldness and courage in offering ourselves to you, whatever it looks like. I pray that you would put zeal in our hearts, Lord, if we've just settled for a rut that says other people do that sort of thing. Lord, may we have a dynamic expectation as these first believers did as they gathered together, that you would show them the what next of their life and their calling as individuals and as a community. And Lord, may we have a sincere desire to be absolutely available to you. And may you empower us as you were just about to empower Matthias and Eustace and the apostles with the Holy Spirit to complete the mission that seemed so ridiculously impossible when they were all together in an upstairs room of going to the very ends of the earth with the good news so that folks like us in Glasgow 2,000 years later could hear and receive salvation through Jesus. And so we thank you for the obedience of those who prayed and listened and offered themselves and went, often at cost to their own earthly lives. Lord, may we be equally faithful for the sake of those who need to hear of Jesus in the decades and the centuries that follow us. So, Lord, come and empower us anew by your Holy Spirit. Renew our zeal if we are lacking. Increase our courage and help us, we pray, to offer ourselves in fullness and faithfulness to you. In Jesus' name.